Howdy y'all, Asha Hawksworth here with a special episode of Redneck Lesbian featuring an interview with Chrissy Stroop, an ex-evangelical writer and advocate who will discuss the evangelical world and her own coming out process and transition. But first, let's discuss gender in the redneck world. One year for Halloween, I and my boyfriend at the time decided to cross-dress for a party. He wore a dress, heels, makeup, and hairspray. I slicked my hair back, colored it black, created a five o'clock shadow with some mascara, and donned a suit and tie. We did a really good job. So good, in fact, that it made a lot of people really uncomfortable. One guy looked at me with a sour expression and said, You look like a guy. Well, congratulations, Sherlock. That was indeed the point of my costume. Most people identify with their physical bodies and assume that their body defines who they are. Because of our body, we think that we are white, black, Native American, Hispanic, or any other ethnicity you can name. Or we think that we are male or female. Or we believe that we are beautiful or ugly, disabled or not, sick or healthy, weak or strong. In short, we have limited ourselves by the boundaries of what is just a vehicle to experience the world with. According to science, most people have two chromosomes, but some people have three, four, or even five chromosomes. While some combinations result in rare disorders, a person can go their whole life and not know that they are genetically XXY or XXX, for example. Gender is not straightforward. Intersex people have always walked among us, born with both male and female physical characteristics. When this occurs in industrialized societies, corrections are usually made surgically, with doctors essentially choosing which gender the person will identify as, at least outwardly. As a result, some intersex adults are unhappy with their assigned gender and choose to change it in later life. This isn't the same as gender dysphoria, which is what occurs in transgender people. They are born with a body of one sex, but they identify as the other. And as you might expect, this gets a lot of rednecks really hot and bothered. While reality isn't black and white, the redneck world surely is. You are your dick or your vagina, as the case may be. The Lord hath given you those genitals, and that's that. And you can see how their ego really needs to hang on to this, because if the white male body were suddenly irrelevant, it's crisis time. They have so much invested in their whiteness and maleness that it all has to mean they're special. The idea of a white man rejecting his maleness for a female identity is more than their Confederate flag-soaked minds can deal with. But if we're honest with ourselves, we all have varying degrees of masculine and feminine traits that have nothing to do with what's between our legs. My daddy definitely wanted a boy, and when he ended up with me, and only me, he adjusted. I learned how to hunt, skin rabbits, and grew up essentially as a tomboy. My best friends in school were all guys, except for the one girlfriend who was essentially my girlfriend, if you get my drift, although we were both in big-time denial about that. After a while, I realized that my dad hadn't made me a tomboy, I just was a tomboy. It wasn't until I reached my 20s that I realized that my entire worldview was a masculine one. I saw myself as an equal to men, and more than that, I sort of saw myself as a man. Masculinity was my comfort zone. 
I think this explains why I scared away so many would-be male suitors over the years. When I came of age in the 80s, there was no talk about transgender people or non-binary people, none of that. Rednecks understood about gays and everybody else. That was pretty much it. So it's been interesting to see the terminology evolve to include more of the gray areas of gender. Looking back, I sometimes wonder if I would have called myself any of those. Transmasculine? Yeah, I think that applies. Non-binary? That too. I have even wondered on occasion if I would be happier in a male body. And the answer is, I'm not sure. I've spent 51 years in this one and I don't feel compelled to change, so probably not. But it's something I can certainly empathize with. The other day we watched the crying game with our kids. When the big reveal arrived, you know the one, both of my kids said, I knew it. I was impressed. When I saw this in 1992, I didn't know it. I was surprised. But times have changed and transgender people are more visible now. So it wasn't even a thing to my teenagers. And that is progress. Of course, progress feels like it comes with a step forward and two steps back, and we're still dealing with a lot of homophobia and transphobia these days. I mean, JK Rowling, what the fuck? You shooting for the Redneck Asshole Award of the Year? I gotta warn you though, there's a lot of competition for that. Anyway, IBM finally apologized for firing a woman 52 years ago because she was transgender. And on the other, Trump cultist Jenna Ellis intentionally misgendered the Pennsylvania Secretary of Health, which shows she is vying for the top prize in the Redneck Passive Aggressive Championships. We've all been there. When I married my wife, we changed our names. My mother doggedly persisted in using my old name. My cousin went a step further by using a name I have never used, which included my ex-husband's surname. And of course, every homophobe in the family, which is to say all of them, persist in referring to my wife as my partner, as if wishing could erase our marriage. So none of this is unusual to the LGBTQ community, but that doesn't mean we aren't sick of this bullshit. Unfortunately for rednecks though, their communities have gay, lesbian, and transgender people in them. That boy in high school I thought might be gay, Oh yeah, he is, and living outside the United States at this point. My old girlfriend from middle school, stuck in an abusive marriage with an asshole who greeted her pregnancy announcement with a vasectomy. Who knows how many miserable people remain closeted in redneck America. It's not always a safe place to be yourself. Just ask Matthew Shepard. Today, I am talking with Chrissy Stroop an ex-evangelical writer and advocate and co-editor of the essay collection, Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. She holds a PhD in modern Russian history from Stanford and is also a senior correspondent for religion dispatches and a regular contributor to the conversationalists. Her work has appeared in Dame Magazine, Foreign Policy, The Boston Globe, Playboy, Political Research Associates, and other outlets, including peer-reviewed academic journals. Much of Stroop's work focuses on exposing conservative Christianity as an anti-pluralist threat to democracy. Welcome, Chrissy. <laughs> that is quite Thank the you. resume. <laughs> Better than mine. Weird, 
I've had a weird life, but uh, thank you for having me on the show. You know, I really am pleased to have you here because uh, I've been following you for a while. And one of the things that hit me right away is like, oh, my God, you get it. Because <laughs> 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 you, you grew up in the culture and you get it. And, you know, my wife is from New England and all her friends are, mm -hmm. you know, when she went to boarding school and, you know, stuff like that, Ooh. private school. Yeah, no kidding. And so oh, yeah. all of these liberal friends are like. Yeah, I went to private school too, where we learned young earth creationism and uh, said the pledge to the uh, American flag, the Christian flag, and the Bible every morning. But hey, it was private school. Right. <laughs> That's a little different. Hers was like a, <laughs> a, a, what do you call it, Episcopal kind of thing. But Yeah. No, I, I know it's different. I'm just being snarky. <laughs> no, no, that, that's real. And um, the thing that I have always kind of run up again, at least until fairly recently, is I would tell all my liberal friends, no, you don't get it. Gilead is like their dream. And they're like, no, that's hyperbole. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah, not much. <laughs> I mean, the thing about, you know, this kind of like toxic authoritarian subculture, um, you know, authoritarian Christianity, um, is that the, the dynamic is such that the people who are more extreme end up with more moral authority, right? So if they were to take over, you know, the people who would go full Gilead would be enabled by the people who were like, oh, I don't think we should actually stone gay people, you know. <laughs> but they would enable it. Yes, they would, they would enable it and the extremists would, uh, you know, be able to take over. That's how I think it would play out anyway. Uh, I mean, yeah, they want, I mean, even this whole, this whole spectrum is bad, right? It's from, you know, let's literally hang gay people, white supremacist patriarchy to, oh, you know, let's just make their existence illegal, but let's not actually, you know, kill them. Unless maybe we make, you know, buggery a capital crime or something, but. <laughs> Which <laughs> they probably Americans would. Say, say buggery, but. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> it's a fun word. <laughs> well, it, these kinds of things never get less extreme as they go on. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you start from that kind of theology that they have that places men on top of women uh, and, you know, places absolute authority in the patriarch over the family. And they want to devolve uh, government to the point where you know, there's no challenge to that authority. There's no protections for children's rights. Yeah, it always redounds to the biggest extreme eventually. It protects the, en enables the most uh, horrific abuses. Why don't you explain about your background and how it wrote, you know, how you grew up a little bit, because it sounds like fiction to so many people. It's like, no, that can't I be. I know. And it's, it's so annoying, right? Which is why, yeah, it's been so important on uh, Twitter over the last few years and other online spaces. And increasingly, I think sometimes people are meeting outside uh, the internet and the real world, too, to talk about these things, because a lot of people just don't get it. And I didn't even have the worst of it by far. And yet people still find it unbelievable, right? So, you know, my, my parents just, they weren't as strict as some. And so while we got the whole, you know, awful ideology, they were just like, they would let my sister and me do community theater and stuff. So you know, they didn't totally ban secular music. They didn't control my reading that much. Um, so I always had kind of a window outside, but still my pretty much 
for most of my childhood, my entire social world was other evangelical Christians like us, right? And very few people of color. I mean, this is also Indiana and living in the suburbs um, of Indianapolis. So that's already, you know, a very white kind of situation. But then in the Christian school, at that time, it was hardly integrated at all. Maybe one to two, maybe three kids of color per graduating class, which could be anywhere from 60, 70 up to like 90 people. Um, and so church and Christian school, that was pretty much our entire social world. Um, in Christian school and elementary school, the days literally began with three pledges. The pledge to the American flag followed by the Christian flag and the Bible. So the pledge to the Christian flag ends with uh, Jesus Christ coming back with life and liberty for all who believe, right? Not for everyone, for all who believe. So um, you have this very... Um, kind of creepy authoritarian Christian nationalist dynamic going on. We also had talent shows at the Christian school and um, they would literally end with a, a sing-along of the performers in the audience of Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. <laughs> oh God, help me. I had some I know, of that. I hate that, hate that song. Um, you know where else I heard that? Just real, like, quick as a little aside. I was with my parents in Florida. I lived in Tampa, Florida from 2015 to 2018. And we went to see the famous mermaid performers of Wikiwachi, which is like this little place in Podunk, Florida. And yeah, well, it's a little, it's like a little tiny theme park. And um, women who actually have to, you know, be very athletic to, to do this. I mean, they have an apparatus for breathing underwater, but they swim in these mermaid tails. They perform people can get their pictures taken with them. Um, it's a big thing. But anyway, so we, they, they sometimes do like versions of fairy tales under the water. And like, you're in this sort of like, you know, auditorium with like glass and you're looking at this sort of like deep, deep water kind of cave, I guess, where they're doing the performance. And anyway, um, it ended with God bless the USA. And the mermaids unfurled this giant underwater American flag, which, of course, violates flag protocol. But um, I was just like, seriously. But it's, it's, it's one of these, you know, 1960s roadside attractions that um, survived. And it's kind of something else. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> It has really nothing to do with my, well, it has a little <laughs> bit to do with my childhood, but <laughs> anyway. So why do you think, um, because this is something I've uh, kind of been coming as like, is, is there any way to change this? Why do you think evangelicals are so resistant to social changes and accepting differences? <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that honestly, any kind of fundamentalism and evangelicalism is a kind of fundamentalism, uh, is, is a place that is defined by people's authoritarian psychology. It's kind of the social embodiment of a cycle of abuse. It's, uh, it's, it's full of traumatized people perpetuating cycles in which they traumatize other people. So extreme religion like this, what we might call a high control religious group or people who are less careful about their terminology and don't care what scholars think tend to call them cults. Um, you know, and I don't really police that terminology if other people want to use the language of cult, but cult to me is sort of, it's, it's a religion that I don't like. Right? I don't like lots of religions, other religions I'm perfectly fine with, but, and I, and I, I mean, that sounded bad. Like I'm fine with most Christians, most Muslims, most Jews, most Buddhists, right? Most of these re world religions, most people in them are fine, peaceful, capable of coexisting with pluralism and democracy. But others wanna use their religions for, for social control. 
that is the sign of a very unhealthy person. You know, um, narcissists and, and abusers and other kinds of predators thrive in, in these environments. But people get pulled in because they're vulnerable. So either you are simply socialized and indoctrinated into this as a child, or if you are an adult convert, almost invariably you are hitting rock bottom or you're suffering some serious life crisis. And that's when you think, oh, I could go back to church for help. And the extreme Christians are there to reach out, love bomb you, which is a technique of starting to control people, right? You, you show them all kinds of love and kindness first before you start to uh, make sure that if they're going to stay in your club, and at this point they're probably dependent on your club, they have to accept that women can never have authority over men, um, that wives have to submit to their husbands, that they need to make sure to do everything they can to oppose LGBTQ rights and to ban abortion. You know, they just surround you with this ideology, and when you're in the club, and particularly in a place like America, where we just don't have adequate social services provided by the state, oh, what else are you going to do? Where else are you going to get free childcare or affordable childcare? You know, you can't afford to send your kids to summer camp. Hey, VBS will will be there for you. You know, <laughs> it's so um, true. It's like they. It's like uh, it's like those spiders that live in the ground, and it's like. They'll just come out and grab you, and once they've got you, uh, they just really suck you in. Uh. It's, uh, it's maybe even more like like those those like fake fireflies. You know how like fireflies are like flashing their lights because they want to mate, right? And the funny thing about fireflies is there's like um, way 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 more males than females because nature is ridiculous and and mean sometimes and funny and weird. So, you know, the male fireflies are up here going flash, 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 and they're looking for corresponding flashes down in the grass from the female fireflies, right? Well, there's these other species that have mimicked that species flash, and they'll flash, and then the male firefly will come down and get eaten. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sorry, yeah. I, I, liked, I liked nature shows a lot as a kid. <laughs> no, that's a great analogy. <laughs> You know, the, the, they have this idea, the evangelists, of that normal people, you know, good people, look this one way. And because of that, it, it um, well, it certainly took me a long time to realize that I was a lesbian. You know, I was like, why are lesbians hitting on me? Go away. Um, well, they saw something I did not you know and um so mm -hmm. it seems like it takes longer if you've come from that culture to kind of wrap your head around the idea the, the the horrible what would be to you a horrible idea of being gay or trans right. or whatever mm -hmm. it is and it um how did that work for you yeah um you're right i mean i obviously different people have different experiences and some people know from pretty early on but i've talked to and heard about a lot of people who who didn't and who don't and simply didn't have the mental toolkit or to to understand their identity or they repressed a lot of things kind of to protect themselves probably maybe even you know from the self-knowledge that would cause them to experience even more harm in, in this environment because yeah queer people are simply not supposed to exist to the extent that they talk about you know homosexuality it's um you know that well it's a choice right and then some of them have kind of like realized okay people don't actually choose this so they pretend they're a little bit more humane they're like well all right so some people are gay 
but God just calls them to be celibate. It's like a special thing. You have to be celibate. And, you know, if you want to rock the boat at all, you're going to be, you're going to lose all your social support. If these are the networks in which you grew up or, you know, in which you've been uh, isolated after a life crisis, a divorce, a serious death in the family, or an addict or whatever, you know, they, they reel you in and then they become your social support system. They will withdraw that support system at the drop of a hat. I mean, some people call it holy ghosting. Like, you know, you, you change your opinion about complementarianism versus um, egalitarianism, uh, which for people who may not know, you know, complementarianism refers to the idea that God created men and women for different roles, right? And so the man has to be the head of the household, has to be the head of his wife, the wife has to submit. Uh, and egalitarianism is where they say, no, marriage doesn't have to work like that, which is not the popular position with evangelical Christians, um, by the way. So, you know, if you go to a church that's complementarian and you're like, you know, my spouse and I don't want to be complementarian anymore. We think it's bad. Goodbye, small group. Goodbye, social support system, you know. Um, and and um, yeah, I mean, there is no space to be different at all. Uh, so in my Christian school growing up, you know, and just in this environment um, that I was surrounded with, I always just kind of felt off and, and different. And I could not put my finger on how exactly. I didn't have the experience of some trans kids where I knew I wanted to be, and I'm just going to use simplified language here, quote unquote, the opposite sex, right? Or I knew I was a girl. I did, um, you know, make friends with boys and girls, but um, it, I, just, I just always kind of felt different and socially awkward. And then later, like in high school, um, you know, I would get teased about not really being masculine or like um, fitting masculine stereotypes. And I mean, oh, there was one popular boy that he just loved to tease me because I liked Alanis Morissette so much when I was a teenager. <laughs> and I just didn't understand what could possibly be wrong with a boy liking an angry girl rocker who sings about how horrible men are, you know? Right. <laughs> like, it, just, it just did not compute for me why this would be something that he got such a kick out of. Um, but, you know, if I were pressed on it, I would just say, well, I'm comfortable in my masculinity. And that basically just meant exactly one thing, you know, it meant I like girls, which was like your fallback option so you can show like, okay, see, I like girls, so I'm straight. Um, and, you know, I always have been since uh, as far back as I can remember being attracted to people, been attracted to girls and women. Um, I later also in my 30s discovered that I can also be attracted to men, which I think I had kind of inklings of before because I wouldn't like have a problem with like rating hotness or whatever, you know, <laughs> including of men, but um, be like, oh yeah, that actor is a lot cuter than that one or, or whatever, just in a casual conversation with a friend. Um, but, you know, I didn't think I might actually, you know, want to be with a man. And now I still don't for the most part, but for other reasons, right? Because men are, you know, so deeply enculturated in patriarchy and it bothers me. But but I could be with a man. Um, I, I've still mostly been attracted to women. And a lot of um, trans women who are in that position, who like are lesbian or lean lesbian, um, do take longer to figure it out for that reason too. But evangelicalism also had a lot to do with it, I think. I'm, I'm sure that it had a lot to do with me not just really 
you know, listening to the part of me that, you know, could also be attracted to boys. Um, so I went, I also just had a lot of female friends in high school and we would just go out to coffee shops and stuff and we weren't dating and everyone thought that was so weird because you're not supposed to do that in that environment, right? And I'm just like, why? It doesn't make sense to me. Um, and the kind of older I got and the more I deconstructed and the more I kind of came into my own, you know, the more that I found myself, even before I understood much of this, you know, interested in uh, women's studies and feminism and, um, and uh, women's and gender history and that sort of thing. I mean, I did my undergraduate thesis on a topic in, uh, as, a, as a history uh, student in a topic that was in women's studies and not that boys shouldn't do that, but you know, just it's not that typical, right? And I didn't think anything about it. Um, had, um, I, I just found that I more often connected more easily with women and with queer people as soon as I was able to drop, you know, the evangelical ideology that was forcing me even, even into college, which I just look back on with such embarrassment now, also still defending young earth creationism at a state school, ugh, so embarrassing. But you know, that had me like, I would, I would feel super nervous every time I met an openly queer person. Like, I think that was also probably a tell, but like, you know, um, I was like also like intrigued and fascinated by them. But um, if, if it came to it, I had to still say like, okay, I think it's a sin, but that doesn't mean I want to be mean to you or anything, you know, <laughs> which, is, which is ridiculous. But so eventually, you know, I, I drop all that stuff. By the time I'm uh, 22, I know I'm not evangelical anymore. I can't, I just can't identify with that, but I'm still kind of in this protracted crisis of faith and I don't have people to talk to about this, you know. And in grad school, uh, when I go there, I taught English in Russia for a year after college. Then I went to grad school. Um, most people around me just didn't get it. And it, it wasn't until I was uh, actually it was after grad school, I was still kind of trying to figure out how I could relate to Christianity. I didn't think I believed much of anything, um, but I was kind of just really trying to stay in the club for my family and, you know, kind of quasi stimulating on some things. And I didn't even know if I, at a certain point, if I was doing it for my, to protect myself or to protect them. And I, um, I felt like an impossible person who shouldn't exist. I still felt really awkward, but one of the things that I learned to do as a kid was to sort of step back and intellectualize everything and live in my head. And so I didn't have this connection with my body very much that I'm working on now. Um, but yeah, so through all that time, you know, the, the friends that I got close to, for the, most of them would be women and or queer. And um, so finally, after grad school, I'm actually teaching at a Russian university in Moscow. I did that from 2012 to 2015. And so uh, I started polydating this queer um, Russian girl who had grown up like partly in America, partly in Russia and was kind of back in Russia taking care of her uh, grandfather. And I learned more about um, feminism and gender theory and stuff from her, but she would also just kind of tease me and I was just a secondary partner um, she had a primary partner and I didn't have any issues with that and we only kind of dated for a few months but um, yeah she would she would tease me about things that I did that she thought were like 
you know, very typical of like lesbian subculture, like the way I made eye contact or stuff like that, or just like, she would always tease me like, why do you have, why are, why are all your friends lesbians? Why do you have so many lesbians who are friends? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know why that's, that's not normal. So, so, um, you know, must have found them all in my, actually that was the period of time in which things were getting kind of dicey for the, the queer community in Russia. In Russia. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, um, you know, even in uh, downtown Moscow, like you were probably safe, but still, you know, hard to be really open about it. So yeah, that that was kind of unfortunate in some in some ways. Um, I mean, to to be there when I realized that I was queer, but also, like America then got worse as soon as I got back. So. I know. <laughs> I mean, Russia and America are a lot are actually very similar. It's a digression, but you know, um, we have we have large contingents of the population in both places. You have this just really like stupid, jingoistic, in-your-face patriotism, and they love conspiracy theories. I mean, seriously, Russians and Americans make the best frenemies because we're really just kind of two sides of the same coin of, um, you know, uh, imperial slash post-imperial inferiority complex thing that we have going on uh, after the Cold War is over. I mean, this whole discourse of national greatness, it's like, it's like a national penis measuring contest. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's very stupid. Um, but Russians are all about that like rah-rah patriotism too. And like in Russia, um, a couple of times I've been in situations like, well, uh, one time my uh, two Russian friends and an American friend and I were taking a bus out to this historic town for its annual cucumber festival, because you know, local agricultural festivals is also a Russian thing as well as an American thing. Anyway, we had bought our bus tickets early enough that we had seats on the bus, and then people who came later had standing room only. And so we were quietly speaking English to each other. There were these Russians standing around, and I think they thought that these Americans sitting there did not understand Russian. So they were saying to each other in Russian, no, look at these foreigners taking our seats on our bus. You know, and it's like, America is just like that. <laughs> or, you know, people don't like it when you're speaking a foreign language. Um, that's how I wonder the me. evangelicals have a love affair with Russia now. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Because they're the same. Um, <laughs> I mean, and there are good people in Russia. I have a lot of good Russian colleagues and, and, and friends, you know. Um, so it's not, it's not the whole people, but it's just this huge streak of like, you know, bully style patriotism um that we also have here uh but yeah so anyway this girl and i were uh she was trying to like sort of get me caught up on like certain elements of queer culture and history that i had missed out on so you know we watched this documentary paris is burning about uh you know the um the big uh what's the word i'm looking for um uh, the balls the gay balls in in new york like you know in the 80s and 90s and stuff um, and we watched this great old uh, movie from 1999 with Natasha Leon called But I'm a Cheerleader, um, which I assume you've seen that? I have seen that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. I mean, you know, being a whole spoof of the whole conversion therapy thing turned into a coming of age love story. Uh, but yeah, so at some point in the movie, um, this, the girl that I was dating, um, I think I turned to her and said something 
she said something back. I don't even remember what it was, but what happens next really stuck in my head, right? So we make eye contact and she just says to me, and I'm going to use a slur here, quoting her, that is not a slur to some people in the community, right? That has been reclaimed. And she, she says, you are such a dyke. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, had this profound moment of realization where I was like, holy shit, that is something that I can be. I don't have to be a man. I am a dyke. That's great. <laughs> I have been called a dyke many times. <laughs> and actually it's accurate. <laughs> so okay, what can I say? <laughs> so I was so I was 33 when I had this kind of like, you know, this epiphany that it, it came in that moment, but after like sort of having to learn that oh yeah, gender and sexuality operate distinctly. Oh yeah, there are trans women who are more butch in their style. Um, you know, so then it's, you're, you, you start picking away at all these barriers and you're left with who do I really feel myself to be? And I realized that I'd always identified with women more than men. Um, couldn't particularly express that or fully understand that in the subculture that I grew up in. Um, but yeah, uh, looking back on it, there was a, a pretty clear pattern uh, and a lot of times during gendered activities, gendered family activities, that I would just kind of sit it out because, you know, I wasn't exactly supposed to be with the women in the kitchen or whatever. I, I love cooking now. I did not enjoy laying on the sofa watching sports. And so I would disappear to some room and read. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember those days so well. It's actually, it's gotten better, I think, because, you know, when I was in school, you were either straight or gay. That was it. Mm -hmm. All these, these, these labels that exist now, they, they were not around then. You know, you, you could be a lesbian, you could be gay, but, you know, transgender, what's that? Now we've got like uh, binary and, and trans masculine and all of these terms. And it's like, wow. You know, that's, it's great because it's kind of helped me figure out where I kind of fall in the spectrum a little bit. It's nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, breaking the binary, I think, is helpful for everybody because, you know, nobody, probably nobody really 100% fits like whatever this ideal type of feminine or masculine is supposed to be, right? It's all culturally constructed anyway. So. Absolutely. It's a weird mix of culture and biology, and it gets a little dicey trying to sort those things out, but you know, uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you talked about earlier about evangelicals being like bullies mm -hmm. and, and the Russians too, some of them. <laughs> um, and in my experience of them is that they are some of the most passive aggressive, if not outright aggressive, but passive aggressive people on earth. Mm -hmm. um, when you said about narcissism as part of the culture, I think that is the culture. Um, <laughs> but you know, you know, I've gotten so much passive aggressive stuff, you know, dead naming. Um, I changed my name too. And, um, mm. and my mother just was like going to keep calling me by that old name until she dies, I think. And, um, you know, refer, we are married. I'm married to Anna, but everybody in the family still refers to me as her partner or she's mm. my partner. You know, we're not actually, can't, can't acknowledge the marriage. Um, mm. how, how do you, have you had some yeah. of that? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, no, passive aggression, yeah, it's a big part of evangelical subculture too. Because, you know, they're supposed to be nice, even though 
they're some of the meanest people you'll ever meet. Uh, so a lot of the times they'll be fake nice and, um, you know, in, in vicious ways or be vicious behind your back. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm in a situation right now as far as like dead naming goes and, and stuff. I mean, because I see my particular journey um, as one of continuity rather than break, because I had this whole like body of work written under the name Christopher, not that freaked out. Like I don't freak out particularly being associated with that name because I wrote a bunch of stuff that's published under it and that's not going to change at this point, particularly the, ac the academic stuff, um, you know. Um, but I mean, if my name is legally changed uh, from Christopher Allen to Christina Rhoda. And I like to go by Chrissy, and I think I like to do that in part because it's gender neutral. And I always liked going by Chris in the first place because it was also gender neutral, you know. Um, and there was a short time when I studied abroad, uh, and one of the terms abroad, I spent um, like one term in Germany and a, a shorter term in England at Oxford. And I decided I was going to try to be Christopher there. I was going to like try it on, except that like everyone had already been told I was Chris anyway, so that just didn't even ever... Right. work but I don't, I don't think it was really going to work anyway but I was going to try it on right I mean there's other times I tried to do things to like make myself more masculine and they were very silly like literally like parting my hair on the opposite side of where the natural part is because more men part their hair on the left than the right and I was like maybe huh. this will help me get an academic job <laughs> so I tried to force my hair to part on the side that's not it's natural <laughs> it would make me more masculine and maybe it would also help me get an academic job um I kind of lost my train of thought there. that's all right you know <laughs> oh you the passive aggression yeah and the dead naming so yeah so I would you know prefer that my relatives use my uh, name and she her pronouns now but most of them don't and um i'm in a particularly bad situation with my sister i have we've been estranged from each other twice at this point and now we're not strange to strange we hardly ever talk though she really cannot see me she cannot comprehend me because she's so afraid um and so you know now that i am queer in a way that can't be hidden anymore um, I'm cut off from even talking to her kids on um, their birthdays on the phone. You know, I can send them presents and then I will get car thank you cards back addressed to Uncle Chris. Um, but, you know, it feels very degrading to put up with that. But at the same time, um, I don't want to cut her completely out of my life. Um, I don't think she's going to come around, but you know, I don't know. It's just, it's complicated. I know a lot of people who are um, older couples and things like that, older queer people who have, that's just the life experiences that they get cut off from particularly children, nieces and nephews, things like that. And, um, and now it seems like um, it, that, it's a little bit better, but certainly in the evangelical community, it's just like they just run screaming in the woods. Yeah, they're just so afraid of of, of difference, of, of the slightest change. And, you know, even though it's bad for a lot of people, and I think deep down a lot of them know it because behind the scenes, they know that all kinds of abuses are going on. They know how common child molestation is in their churches and their families. 
Um, but, you know, they're told that us evil liberals paid by George Soros. Oh, by the way, the Russians pioneered the George Soros conspiracy theories. But, I'm not surprised. You, you know, that we have this international cabal of pedophiles, like we're all pedophiles. Um, only Jesus allows them to sometimes not be pedophiles, right? So they're way safer just kind of like keeping it all under the rug and never going against the family than they are with the evil liberals like us out here. <laughs> well, and I guess old habits die hard because even in, so you, you're part of what we call the exvangelical community. You're no longer part of that. But some of the traits kind of live on because when you were outed, that actually came from the exvangelicals, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I would definitely still say that there's sort of a broad and diffuse community and movement uh, that I'm still a part of. I rarely use the hashtag exvangelical anymore. Um, and I mean, so to be, I, I want to be careful not to accuse people of doing more than they actually did. But so technically, I outed myself to try to protect myself and, and this kind of like supportive community we had built on Twitter that was just being torn apart by the smear campaign against me that was organized by um, a few people, chiefly Sam uh, Fields and um, Eve, formerly known as Hannah Ettinger, um, and Karen Darkwater. They, they just, um, they, they, they got some people together to sign a statement. They called themselves the um, Magdalene Collective, you know, or Maudlin if you're British, but anyway. Um, and uh, they wrote a very transphobic statement. Speaking of evangelical passive aggression, it was so clearly directed at me, um, though they did not mention my name. But everyone who knew, like, the context of this would understand that this was directed at me. Um, and I really think it mostly came from a place of, of envy that uh, because of my particularly weird background, my particular um, set of circumstances and academic expertise and lived experience, I had sort of become um, a relatively, but not hugely pro a prominent Twitter personality, right? I mean, back then I probably had, I don't know, 16,000, 20,000 followers. Now I have 55,000, which is still like small for a big account or big for a small account, you know? But on exvangelical Twitter, nobody else has, has those numbers. Um, I didn't do that on purpose. Um, yes, was I trying to do some good by, you know, trying to have a career as a public intellectual speaking to these issues? Sure, but I was always trying to uplift and highlight other people's voices. I think I retweet and, and quote, uh, quote tweet a lot more than, you know, uh, most comparable verified Twitter accounts. And I was promoting their stuff all the time, but somehow they told themselves in their heads that I was just doing that all for my own self-interest somehow. I mean, some people even started calling me a cult leader. Um, and, and they went they went full Darvo. Um, and, and a lot of people believe them. Like, you know, so I came out as trans fully before I was ready. Yeah, I had discussed, you know, um, being you know, not entirely cis or whatever, a little bit on podcasts that my relatives were never in a million years going to listen to and that most people weren't going to listen to. But I wasn't really out, out, right? Because these were community podcasts that I just didn't, and I, and I didn't fully identify as a woman in those podcasts anyway. So I did, and it did cause fallout in my family because I wanted to, okay, so 
this was in the, in the context of I was teaching at the University of South Florida for three years, right? And then um, I was a postdoc and then a visiting instructor, a PhD in modern Russian history from Stanford. And then I just kind of ran out of steam on the academic job market. Nothing more for me at the University of South Florida, nothing permanent, could not find a tenure track job in the field. This was after coming back from teaching in Russia for three years where I never wanted to stay forever anyway, but particularly as Russia was cracking down more on uh, queer people and just getting more authoritarian, annexing Crimea and all of that, making things unstable. I wanted to get out of there, go back to America. Well, I would have been happy to stay in Western Europe where they have normal social safety nets, but uh, that wasn't gonna happen. I mean, there weren't the jobs. So I got a chance to go back to America with a good job, but it wasn't a permanent job. And so I then had to go back to, to Indiana and um, live with my parents. So this is not the safest situation in which to come out, you know, um, right. trying to reinvent myself for a year, see if I could make it as a, as a writer before maybe trying to go into the think tank and um, advocacy, human rights advocacy world or something like that if I wasn't making it as a writer. And as it is, I kind of do both those things, but you know, independently. So I am lucky enough to be able to be making it right now, uh, largely through Patreon support. And I do write commentary and journalism, but I also write your policy research for think tanks like Political Research Associates. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I was living with my parents and I mean, I knew it wouldn't be the worst situation. I also knew my mom would not take this well. I mean, it already come out to my mom as queer, which had caused, has caused one big freak out with her, but I didn't come out as trans, right? And I was trying to kind of hint, but she was not getting it. And meanwhile, I'm lucky in as much as I was able to feel out my dad on a lot of things over the years, and he kind of deconstructed a lot of things, and also through a weird set of circumstances, like passive aggressively basically being forced out of the evangelical church where he was a music pastor, he had to go on the job market just a couple of years before he would get full social security benefits, which was like a huge stressor and, and dangerous, but it's because the evangelical church fucked him over. And he ended up becoming the music pastor at um, an an LGBT affirming um, ELCA Lutheran church. So that's great. My dad is now a, a music pastor in a mainline church that is affirming, um, which he now also totally thinks it's a much better fit for him. But my mom still teaches at the Christian school I graduated from. Pretty sure she's not affirming. She has at this point learned to mostly respect my boundaries and we are able to maintain a relationship, which a lot of people aren't lucky enough to do. Um, but it can still be a little tricky sometimes. And I'm sure that if she were affirming, I mean, she, she could not say that out loud or she would lose her job and she cannot afford to retire at this point. Um, so, uh, so yeah, this was, this was bad, but they were basically accusing me of being just another white man talking over everybody else, um, weaponizing social justice uh, language in an unfair way. But the statement was also full of, um, transphobic language. It basically took the language of AMAB, assigned male at birth, and equated it with um, cis male. So it basically equated trans women with cis males, you know, um, basically saying that, you know, to be participating in these discussions are definitely not to be centered. And they were treating me, again, like I was some, like, illegitimately become some kind of celebrity and I didn't think I was a celebrity at all. I still don't really, not by any normal definition, I'm still a struggling writer. 
I don't make a shit ton of money. You know, I barely get by. I pretty much live paycheck to paycheck, which is scary when you're not always sure when you're going to get the paychecks uh, or which paychecks you're going to get this month because I don't have um, exactly regular work. You know, I am making it as a writer and speaker. I recognize I have a lot of privilege to be able to do that. And I recognize that I grew up with a lot of privilege anyway, just because of how I was perceived. So I wouldn't deny any of that, but they went nuclear on me. And so then when I came out as a trans woman to expose their transphobia and just try to make this stop, suddenly uh, they had one of the people on their side say that someone had called this person's place of work and outed them as non-binary and were trying to insinuate that it was me. And honestly, I don't even think it happened. I think this is just full Darvo from these people who just, you know, went off the deep end. I mean, I know from screenshots that people showed me that Sam Field was lying about me behind my back, giving completely contradictory accounts of what had happened to different people in direct messages. So, you know, in theory, well, they were both distorted accounts, but in theory, you know, one of them could be true, but they both could not be true. So Sam Field is a liar, but what are you gonna do? <laughs> well, those kinds of narcissistic mind games are par for the course <laughs> when it comes to this whole community. Um, mm -hmm. My mother actually is a textbook narcissist on top of that. I, your father's story gives me a little hope, though. You know, mm -hmm. uh, my, my, my parents have done the reverse. They've gotten more conservative and more evangelical than even when I was growing up. And I'm like, oh, my God, I dodged that bullet. You know, they're just mm. way off the deep end compared to where, Yikes when I was in high school. So uh, do you think there's any hope for evangelicals or we just need to keep them out of power? <laughs> Mostly we just need to keep them out of power. I mean, <laughs> as, as a demographic, no, there's no scalable way to reach them. One-on-one, -on -one, sometimes, sometimes maybe love and family actually triumph over all that indoctrination and fear-mongering, but probably in more cases than not, they, they don't. And when that does happen, it usually takes years of patience and it's based on a connection that you already have with them that isn't based on you know the only reason you are connected to them at all is because you want to change their mind that right. never works of no. course they think it works though because they try to they try to do friendship evangelism with everybody but yeah <laughs> well it's like your existence not just your existence but you're having a contrary thought is like this huge uh impediment to them you know like they mm -hmm. have to they have it's a massive to, threat to them yes. it's scare it just scares them to death oh gosh yeah it's, it's not rational but it's it's how they're socialized yeah and that's really strong that's really strong in fact i have certainly i'm 51 i've spent a lot of years working through my shit <laughs> and, and it still comes up, you know, when, you, when you're yeah, yeah. used to all those mind games and stuff, and particularly once you have children, because we have children, and it's like you have to revisit all of that again, you know, mm, to, to make mm. sure that you're being a healthy parent instead of a crazy one. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I don't know if I ever will be a parent. Uh, the ship may have sailed for me, but I do like kids, you know, and I wish I could be more involved in my niece's lives. But uh, yeah, I mean, whether even if you don't have kids, you still have to revisit a lot of this stuff and, and work through it to get to a place where you can kind of hold it at enough distance to really be able to um, talk about it publicly and try to do this kind of work, I think, effectively. 
and I, you know, I do hope that a, a lot of the folks who attacked me uh, will eventually get to that place. And they're just not. I mean, they're all, they're all 20-somethings. Um, and I think a lot of them are not in the, the greatest life circumstances. And, you know, I hope they get the help that they need. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, these little 20-year-old shits are coming after me trying to destroy my life when I'm like in my late 30s. And it's not, it's not helpful. No, it's not helpful. And it seems like nowadays, uh, transgender people in particular are demonized way worse than even your average, you know, gay and lesbian person. Um, the rhetoric is just insane. Yeah, I mean, I don't try to make any of these things a, a contest, but, you know, the whole men in dresses sneaking into bathrooms um, thing is, a, is, is not um, fun. <laughs> I remember somebody I was used to be friends with on Facebook posted, you know, I don't, I don't want my daughters to see a, a penis for the first time in the women's room. And I'm like, honey, if your daughters see a penis in the women's room, it's because they're peeking. <laughs> she different. <right? laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Or, you know, because they sneaked in there with their boyfriend. I mean, how many, how many people's genitalia have you seen in, in public restrooms? I don't think... Well, okay, I've caught a few glimpses at urinals, which are disgusting anyway, but that's a different thing. I mean, when you're in a stall, right? So. Exactly. <laughs> don't see anything. I don't know what you're on about anyway. Oh, Lordy. Thanks for keeping up the good fight, Chrissy. I really appreciate you coming on my podcast. Uh, thank you, Asha. It's, it's great chatting with you. I appreciate the invitation. Oh, it's great to see you in person. <laughs> yeah, nice to, nice to connect with you in person too. And hopefully we'll actually do it face to face given that we're both in the portland oregon area once we can get past all this covid bullshit oh let us hope <laughs> let us hope <laughs> i would like that <laughs> well, i heard they started vaccinating people in britain just today like you know yeah they did and apparently the united states didn't buy nearly as many uh, uh shots as they could have <laughs> <laughs> yeah we got to do it is what it is right <laughs> it is what it is <laughs> oh well thank you again and uh, yeah. take care of yourself you, you take care too bye right. thanks for listening everyone you can support chrissy by following her on twitter at c underscore stroop s-t-r-o-o-p you can also support her on Patreon.com. Just search for Chrissy Stroop. Uh, and she writes all the time, so she's always posting stuff. So uh, uh, support her. She's fighting the good fight. And for everybody out there, have a wonderful Christmas and New Year. If I don't talk to you before then, take care. <laughs>